This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is Trish Critic, and today I'm joined by Dr. Mitchell Levy. He's Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine at Brown University. He's also the Director of the Medical ICU at Rhode Island Hospital. The reason he's joining us is because he's the author of today's article for discussion, Mortality Changes Associated with Mandated Public Reporting for Sepsis, the results of the New York State Initiative. So, Dr. Levy, thanks for joining. Uh, I really appreciate it. And um, thanks, I thought we might... It's a pleasure to be here. Great. I thought we might start by just having you tell our listeners a little bit about what you did, because this is a bunch of data that was publicly publicly reported, and then you and your co-investigators kind of dug into those uh, data more to to look at the impact of this mandated reporting. That's exactly right. I think there are a couple of important things. And the first, uh, you said uh, very well, which is uh, this was, I've been working with New York State since 2013. And as I think many of your listeners know, um, uh, this initiative uh, traces back to the unfortunate and tragic death of Rory Staunton, who was a young 14-year-old boy who died in New York City from unrecognized um, severe sepsis and septic shock uh, from a sports injury. And uh, that that led to um, a series of front-page articles in the New York Times, which then led to the Commission of Health of, the, of New York State, uh, at that time it was Nirav Shaw, uh, to develop what was called the Rory, Rory's Regulations. And in 2014, New York State Department of Health mandated public reporting. First, they mandated the development of evidence-based protocols consistent with the performance measures that were established by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign and tested and published in several, ma- in several peer-reviewed journals. Which you've been involved in. That's correct. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. First in 2010, and then again with 30,000 patients from three continents in 2015. Um, and based on those data, New York State Department of Health uh, mandated that all hospitals in New York State, which is about 300, uh, rep- develop protocols uh, based on these measures and report all cases of, at that time, severe sepsis and septic shock uh, to, this, uh, to the Department of Health in terms of the compliance with these performance measures and the outcomes. And they did that over a two-year period. And at a certain point after the initial two- to three-year period, we then formed a group of investigators who then um, took the database and worked together to produce the manuscript that was just published in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. And this effort, just to give context, the regulations in New York predated CMS's SEP1, though they were rolled out in the midst of this two-year period that you looked at, right? Exactly. I think that's an important point to, for the listeners as well. This is really 
New York's taken the lead on this, and they deserve mm-hmm. a fair amount of credit for this. They were the first um, re- regulatory agency or Department of Health to mandate two things. One, public reporting, and two, uh, compliance and outcome measures for sepsis. Uh, somewhere in the middle of the New York State Initiative, the CMS introduced the SEP one initiative, which is very, very similar to the New York State initiative. Um, it differed in the size of the case report and the amount of data that um, in, that was reported in the national measure compared to the statewide measure. But really, New York State was the first state, and now there are several other states following, to mandate this kind of public reporting. Just to clarify what you just said, the the New York State is actually requiring all cases to be reported. Is that right? As opposed to sampling? Yeah. Yeah, that's correct. And that's a good point. In CMS, I believe this it's a random sample of only ten percent of cases. In in the case of New York State, uh, every case of sepsis needs to be reported. And in fact, we also published a paper in Critical Care Medicine that looked at the percentage of cases that were were reported to the state prospectively compared to the administrative coding database that was that is also automatically generated in New York State. Mm-hmm. And how did those just? I know we're talking about the different paper, but just so people aren't left hanging, how did those compare? It was very favorably. Um, the if you look at just the administrative coding base, it, they, uh, database, it accounts for 95 plus percent of all cases that were reported to the state, and prospectively, 80 percent of the cases that were reported to the state were reported to the database. So, so hospitals missed uh, 15 to 20 percent of cases, and they had those cases then reported back to the hospitals by the state, and were expected to report data from that as well. So, yeah, it's a very rig- high, rig- very rigorous reporting for a statewide effort. It's it's remarkably comprehensive. I'm curious, and this is not the subject for our discussion today, how much person power that takes to do all of that yeah. but um that's another that's another discussion yeah. i think it's a very germane discussion because also uh, even in the cms initiative one one of the real complaints we hear is the labor intensive quality even though it's only a 10% sample for the cms data um, there's so much chart abstraction that's required there's a lot of there's a, a feeling that um a, there are a lot of resources going to these these efforts that perhaps might be better directed elsewhere. On the other hand, it's hard to argue with the success of the initiative. So I think over time we'll see this become more automated, but there's no question. It's very the data entry are very labor intensive and collection. Yeah, and I think I think that question of like can you sample ten percent versus report everything is is germane to that. And then I, exactly as you said, could you automate it more so, more so that we do keep track and we do keep having metrics and we keep being transparent, but we don't divert limited resources um, in a way that we're shortchanging something else potentially. And I, it's hard to measure that, but I think it's certainly a topic of discussion. I think um, so. I agree. Uh but let's dig into a little bit about what you guys found because I thought it was really interesting. It was impressive 
One one question I have real quickly. You said there's over 300 hospitals in uh, New York State. You looked at, I think, in total 183 hospitals with a, over 91,000 patients in this in this examination. Why was it uh, a smaller number of hospitals that you ended up examining? Oh, then you're I, I misspoke. You're you are correct. It's 183 hospitals, not 300. Okay. I'm not sure where I got the 300 from. Okay, that's Thank fine. I was that. like, I thought it was all of the hospitals. No, you're um, right. Yeah, it's all. There are, to be exact, there are 185 hospitals in New York State, and I think of those, two hospitals did not have enough cases, and so we reported the hospitalizations from 183 hospitals. Yeah, that's that's what I recall reading too. So that makes sense to me. Great. Yeah. Um, so I think the most interesting thing, and then we can dig into some of the details, is that what you showed was that the places where the protocol was initiated or in patients where the the protocol was initiated, um, mortality was lower. And over time, as bundle compliance was more completely implemented, the trend was for mortality to be, to be lower. Those were two big take-homes that I had. Um that's correct, and I think that's very important. Um, so first of all, um, if you look at the HOSP patients, not all patients had the, were <clears throat> identified prospectively, and therefore not all patients had protocols identified. Now, it's a very important point. When we say protocols initiated, what we mean, mm-hmm. that it's possible that in some of these patients, they still received antibiotics. They still received fluids. They still received, uh, had blood cultures obtained. But but somehow, prospectively, that patient wasn't identified as sepsis, severe sepsis or septic shock, and therefore, no protocol was activated. And each, there were four ways in which hospitals had kind of had a trigger that the protocol went off. And in um, almost 20% of cases, 25%, no protocol was initiated. And when you look at over time, the mortality change in patients in whom protocols were activated versus not activated, there was a statistically significant decline in mortality in the patients for whom protocols were initiated compared to patients in whom there was no protocol initiated where the change in mortality was flat over two years. So that's very, very important. So let's let's just talk a little bit more about the protocol initiated. That was based on the hospital reporting that they had initiated a, a sepsis protocol? Yeah, that's correct. So there were four ways in which um, patients had their uh, hospitals activated protocols. Some hospitals had sepsis code teams, which is very common. So, so if uh, if the uh, fever a patient developed a fever, whether it was the emergency department or the intensive care unit or um, or the uh, or the wards, then patients had a, a sepsis code called, and that was. And so that that was one way. Um, the other way was some patients just had clinical certain clinical signs and symptoms uh, could be best practice alerts, but um, basically uh, because of a fever, because of a white count, um, because of um, a high respiratory rate or a tachycardia, then that through that clinical assessment, whether it was physician-based or nursing-based, then the protocol would be uh, activated. And then the third way that was um, also important was 
prospective screening tools. So uh, in the emergency department or in the sh- or on the wards, either electronically or by hand, there would be each hospital has developed screening tools. And if someone met the criteria for screening tools, then then the protocol would be activated. I think the important thing here is regardless of those three different buckets, if you will, they're essentially the same thing, which is if you develop signs and symptoms of the inflammatory response, that is tachycardia, fever, elevated white count, and or organ dysfunction, then your the alarm would go off either in someone's head or literally in the electronic health record, and then a protocol would be activated and people would follow that protocol. But really, right. however you call it, whether you call it a code team or clinical assessment or a screening tool, you're doing the same thing. Yeah, though I was intrigued that it looked like about three-quarters of them were by clinical assessment that you described, yes, and a much smaller right. percentage were by like a code sepsis, only yes, because I right. think there's lots of discussion in institutions now about do we need a code seps, you know, a code team for sepsis patients, et cetera. I realize that's not what you asked in, in looking at these data, but I think as a reader reads it, they should know that the vast majority of these were from that kind of either individual, I think this is what's going on, or a constellation of things that draw people's attention to say, I think that's what's going on, but they were mostly clinical assessment. I think that's right, and I, I think you're right. That our study wasn't designed to uh, unearth the difference between the approaches of, tr- of difference in triggers. Certainly, I can say in my hospital, for instance, we've incorporated best practice alerts into mm-hmm. the electronic health record. So rather than a code team, we have an electronic code team, which basically alerts the providers, whether it's an, a nurse or a physician, that the criteria for a code team have been met and then prompt the physician, the provider, or the nurse um, through the steps of the protocol for sepsis compliance with the sepsis measures. Yeah, we use a similar system here, an electronic-based one. I'm this is tangential, but I'm just curious. Do you have it running live on your patients in the ICU as well as in acute care and in the emergency department? We do not have it running live in the intensive care unit. We have it running live on the wards and in the emergency department over the last two years, and have begun to show increasing compliance with the step one measure associated with declining mortality. Yeah, we have the same same approach. And I'm going to ask you about ICU patients later, so that's why I'm asking you that now. Um, okay, I'm going to go back. I just want to make sure I fully understand this. Um, so when the hospitals reported, they said, here's our cases of patients with sepsis, and yes or no, we initiated our, our sepsis protocol, right? That that was Correct. part of what they, they fed forward. And then you looked at, did they do the components of what they needed to do in their three- and six-hour bundles um, in terms of actually compliance with the full bundle no they reported their own compliance oh, they did? and okay. we did a 10 percent random audit for every hospital so okay. they rep- they self-reported compliance and outcomes and then we and when i say we uh, i mean the new york state department of health had a team mm-hmm. of auditors who would go out and do 10 percent of the patients in the hospital uh, gotcha. that were reported because it's interesting the, the level of initiation is is different than the percentage completion. Um, and the three-hour bundle is higher. I think it was around half, That's 50, right. 50%, at least to start, and then went up into the low 60s. That's correct. And much lower for the six-hour bundle, you know, 25%-ish to 30% over time. Um, 
So I, I'm curious. I would which love is, to hear your thoughts on this. Which has been reported in a lot of different places. Yeah. Um, I, yeah. So, uh, yes, good question. A couple of things. One, three-hour bundle in many ways is much easier to do. Uh, yep. It's essentially um, measure a lactate. Um, give blood it, give blood cultures before you give antibiotics as long as the delay is not more than 45 minutes. Uh, give antibiotics within an hour. And then um, if the uh, patient's hypotensive or a lactate greater than four, administer 30 cc's per kilogram and or give vasopressors if they don't respond to that. So that's fairly routine and much easier compliance. The six-hour bundle then becomes a bundle of remeasuring the lactate and um, repeated physical physical exam if or hemodynamic monitoring. And so that's traditionally been the uh, the reason for the low compliance with the six-hour bundle, which is either clinicians forget to or fail to document that they've done a repeated exam after the initial resuscitation, or they're not documenting the type of hemodynamic monitoring that's being performed to guide subsequent fluid therapy. I think that's true for CMS, but I thought for these bundles, the six-hour bundle was the fluids, vasopressors, and the recheck of the lactate. I thought the three-hour bundle was just antibiotics for New York State. Antibiotics, no, lactate, and the cultures. That that trio was a three-hour bundle. No, it's if if the patient comes in hypotensive, and the lactate's elevated, they still stay in the three-hour bundle, and you get the fluids. So so you you could be you could be in the three or six-hour bundle if if you you stay in the three-hour bundle if you walk in the door and you're hypotensive. Hmm. Okay. It reads. It's interesting how it reads in the in the article, maybe isn't as clear as what you just said, um, because the way that it reads in the article is highlighting that the six-hour bundle for patients with hypotension are those things, the 30 cc's per kilo and uh, vasopressors for refractory hypotension. But you're suggesting that those are part of the three-hour bundle as well, if the person's initially yeah. hypotensive. Okay. Um, because I do think those are the, those things are more challenging. I didn't read anything about needing to do that reassessment of volume status, like <clears throat> is part of CMS requirements. It, was that part of what New York was asking for? As no, well? you're correct, and you're correct. The three-hour bundle was the once people needed fluids, they went into the six-hour bundle. That is correct. Okay. Okay. All yeah. right. Um, it, I ask about it because it's interesting because they clearly it was harder to comply with those second steps. And I thought there was really interesting data in your in your supplementary data that over time it looks like hospitals got better at doing that second lactate. And I don't know if that's because they automated it or came up with systems that would give the get the second lactate checked. But the change in administration of fluids seemed relatively flat, and the change yep. with vasopressor seemed you know, slightly increased, but pretty flat as well. So while there were steps forward in cultures and antibiotics and lactate, there wasn't as much change in those other two parameters. And I wanted to pick your brain about why you think that might have been the case. Yeah, if you look at the, and you're right, it's in the supplementary uh, table, there was an initial increase in both vasopressors and fluids, and then Mm -hmm. they kind of level off at a certain point towards the last quarter of the two years that we reported. I I think that that points out one of the great um, areas of resistance, if you will, um, (laughs) in general over the years, 
has been the administration of 33 seeds per kilogram. Uh, in particular, people, and, and I think part of this is intelligence. I think people who, and then part of it is just, uh, I would say just resistance. I don't want to use the word stubbornness, but um, um, <laughs> I thought you were going to use stubbornness, but fair uh, enough. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit of both. I think, from my point of view, um, truly patients with severe sepsis and septic shock who come in and are hypotensive are more often than not effectively hypovolemic. And as we know, under the influence of nitric oxide, you have generalized vasodilatation. And then you add to that the clinical picture of these folks, especially who come in through the emergency department, who've been staying at home in bed, and either with it because of a urinary tract infection um, or a community-acquired pneumonia are not feeling well, they have fever, they might have chills, they're having trouble keeping liquids down. So I think it's safe to say, and I really do believe that most clinicians would agree that the majority of these folks when they come in are effectively not only vasodilated but hypovolemic for the reasons we just talked about. And yet, people we find so many reasons to be afraid of 30 cc's per kilogram. And I would remind you, Trish, 30 cc's per kilogram, if we say that the average American is 70 to 90 cc's per kilo, um, 90 kilograms, is really two to three liters. It's yeah. not an amazing amount of fluid. It really isn't. And and it's supposed to be ideal body weight. So so we, we've created this culture of fear, and, and we act as if every one of our patients has end-stage renal disease and is dialysis-dependent or has an ejection fraction and a severe cardiomyopathy of 5%. And really, that's just simply not true. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule. There are, I'm sure, some patients who might not benefit from 30 cc's per kilogram, but far and away, and the data do bear this out, the majority of patients come in, as I said, effectively hypovolemic and vasodilated. And giving those people two to three liters of fluids when they walk in the door in the emergency department or even on the wards when they haven't been had when they haven't had much fluid intake over the last twenty four to seventy two hours is not only safe but extremely effective, and our data suggests that it's independently associated with survival. And I think that clinically rings true for me. I would say there's probably some institutions that are enriched for those patient populations that wouldn't benefit, but if you took all comers with sepsis and septic shock, I think the vast majority of them I would agree with you. Um, yeah, and, and I would just add quickly, you, you're right, there, I'm sure there's a patient population who might not benefit, and I don't think those patients should get fluids. But you, you, when you listen to people, clinicians express their resistance, you would believe that 95% of the population in the United <laughs> States and globally have an EF of 5% and are on dialysis three times a week. No, that's only true at my hospital. True. But, uh, right. but that's otherwise, that's not the that's case. That's exactly right. And that's what people <laughs> um, say, oh, well, no, my patients are different. So, okay, so going back, there was some, I think there is more resistance to the fluid part. I, I don't, and maybe there's resistance to the vasopressor part. I, I haven't heard as much contention about using vasopressors. It's interesting to me that that had a kind of similar plateau. And when you did your analysis, complying with the vasopressor part didn't actually impact mortality when, That's when you right. looked at it. 
Now, I think um, also, though, remember that's a smaller patient population, so it's possible yeah. that the reason for that, and again, I'm just speculating, of course, but the reason that was the only uh, individual element not uh, independently associated with survival may well be because of the smaller numbers in that group. Yeah, I I hear you. Um, I have two other things I want to just touch on while I, while I have you. The first one is... Um, about 80% of the patients that were reported were patients who presented in the ED with severe sepsis or septic shock. And then there's this 10% that were in the intensive care unit and 10% that were on acute care. And I'm wondering right. if you think we can really say stuff about those patients in the ICU and in acute care, or this is really a commentary on this, doing these processes in the emergency department, relevant to what you were just saying about smaller numbers. Yeah, that's a great question, and, I, and I've thought a lot about this, and there's been a lot of debate. Remember a couple of things. We, when we published the data from the Surviving Sepsis Campaign on a global level, there's a big difference between the U.S. and Europe. That is, in the, in the United States, uh, the patients who wind up with severe sepsis or septic shock were now se- sepsis and septic shock. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the intensive care unit, 75% come from the ED. In Europe... It's much lower because of the fewer ICU beds in Europe. So about uh, 55% of patients who wind up in the ICU come from the wards. That's one. Two, Mm -hmm. I do think, I think this is an emergency department and a wards initiative. I think we know in the emergency department, these people come in fresh. And even though some patients are incredibly obvious, they've been coughing, they come in coughing up sputum, they're a little hypotensive, they wind up getting intubated, or it's a urinary tract source. But they're easier, not easier, but um, more readily identified. I think the same thing's true on the wards. These folks are on the wards, maybe they come in with a, uh, an infiltrate with no organ dysfunction or a UTI, but they're a little infirm, so they get admitted. And then over the course of 24 to 72 hours, they worsen. They develop organ mm-hmm. dysfunction. And those are easier to identify, I would argue. So I think where these bundles are really important is that patient population. In the intensive care unit, it's a little different. Either the person's been admitted with sepsis or septic shock, so that's already their bundle started in the emergency department, so yep. they're not they don't need to be identified, or you have a medically complex patient who's got multiple comorbidities, and then they develop a fever five days into their intensive care unit, intensive care unit stay, or seven days, and now you're asking, is this fluid overload? Is this a, community, is this a ventilator-associated pneumonia? Is this is an intra, a new intra-abdominal infection, a calculus cholecystitis, et cetera? Intensivists know what a challenge it is in these patients who've been in the unit for a while to distinguish amongst the complexity of comorbidities to identify whether or not this is a new infection. So that kind of surveillance in the absence of a way to be to have a more precision medicine about identifying new infections is really challenging. I, I agree. I mean, you're confirming my bias, which is that this doesn't have a role in the intensive care unit because it's not nuanced enough for those patients. Um, yeah. But it was interesting that you there were 10% of the patients that they reported developing sepsis, and some of them had the protocol <laughs> initiated on yeah. them in the ICUs in Absolutely. this patient population. Um, that's not something we would do necessarily in the same way in our institution. So I was kind of intrigued that some of the hospitals were doing that. 
Well, because I think part of it, and you could argue, and I think a lot of people would argue against it, but you could argue that this is the value of public mandated process, which is if you have a patient that develops a community-acquired pneumonia, I'm sorry, a ventilator-associated pneumonia, or a hospital-acquired infection, or an acalculus cholecystitis, you are going to have to report that case once it's coded that way. So the Mm -hmm. state's going to come back to you and say, hey, you have a patient who had a a ventilator-associated event or a calculus cholecystitis while in the ICU or a new abdominal infection post-op. You need to report this case. So it motivates people to start to be more vigilant about identifying them and reporting them. Yeah, I agree with you. I guess the one thing that I would say is that if I were going to quibble significantly with giving more volume, it would be implementing the six-hour bundle on a critical care patient already in the ICU, right, develops an infection in the ICU. I would have more more debate with you about that that being 95% of the patients need more volume at that point in time. I agree with that. I I wouldn't argue with that. I mean, I wouldn't argue, on the other hand, you also would have to say, if you have a patient who is starting to do well and then suddenly gets a secondary infection or hospital-acquired infection, they vasodilate, right? So For sure. So some of them will. I mean, no doubt there will be septic patients who develop sepsis in the ICU who will require volume resuscitation. I completely agree. I just think it's a smaller percentage than, like, the vast majority, which is what I would say for coming into the ED. Um, You know, you're pointing out something, and I agree completely, by the way, but one of the things that I love that you're pointing out, which is what frustrates me on the road and and also with my dear friends and colleagues in the ICU community when I go uh, all over the world and I talk about this, the intensivists argue as if 90% of the patients are being identified in the intensive care unit and they don't want to do these bundles. And yet the truth is, whether you're in Europe, Asia, or in the United States, we're really talking about 10%. And the large majority of cases, you've already got this patient who's received two to four liters of fluid. So you, you have, I will have debates with my intensivist friends and realize, I feel this way myself, I can't remember the last time I saw a patient who hadn't already received 30 cc's mm-hmm. per kilogram. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so you you have these folks who are arguing, arguing vehemently as if they're the ones at the bedside trying to decide whether or not to give 30 cc's, when in fact it's the emergency department physician, not the intensivist, who really has to make this call. Real, I agree. And, I, and or the hospitalist or acute yes, care right. team where exactly. somebody's declining yes. in the hospital. Yes. Yes. Um, my last thing that I want to talk about with you so that I don't take up your entire morning is um, I think people might be tempted to say, well, the fact that these hospitals initiated a protocol is really just a global marker for these being, quote unquote, better hospitals, that their care is overall better. And so it's less about implementation of the bundles and more about the kind of overall care of those institutions. And I wanted to give you a chance to respond to that. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we haven't looked at those data yet. So what you're asking is, are the, are the patients who have the – and remember, one of the most important findings in the study is not just that participation in this in the initiative over two years led to an associated mortality decline in, across the state, but the patients – I'm sorry, the hospitals that had higher compliance had a steeper mm-hmm. drop 
in mortality. What we haven't done is compared uh, hospitals with a higher compliance in sepsis measures with hospitals that have higher compliance with 30-day readmissions for COPD, 30-day mm-hmm. readmissions for mm-hmm. CHF, uh, skip measures, and that's a great study. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I, I, um, it's quite possible, although I believe that a number of the published studies do not bear out that compliance with one measure is associated with compliance with other measures. So is it a marker? It might well be. I don't know, but I don't know that that's been borne out in the literature yet. Maybe we'll have to look at it again because it's interesting. I find it it interesting. Um, Well, I think this is a great addition to the literature. I think it's great food for thought as lots and lots of hospitals are working on implementation of bundles with SEP1, a reality now for everyone in the U.S. Um, And I think our discussion, at least for me, helped shed some light on some of the finer points of what you guys did with a lot of really interesting data that all these hospitals in New York submitted. Um, I don't know if you have any last thoughts that you want to add. No, I think the only thing I'll say is um, I think the data picture and the reports are getting fairly compelling that um, compliance with these sepsis measures does represent the best care possible and is associated in many published reports now with declining mortality. I hear you. We'll debate another day whether or not all the things that are in the CMS SEP1 are the same as, they're not all the same as the ones in the New York bundle, so whether or not that needs slight tweaking. Yep. can debate another day. Um, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for talking with me. I'll add that if you want. Oh, thanks. If you want to read the article that we talked about in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes out of the blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thanks for listening and have a great day. 